0: We do appreciate your presence tonight. We do, as has already been mentioned, have many visitors. We're glad that you are with us and the Union Grove congregation, uh, where Steve preaches and serves as one of the elders, is very well represented, as is North Hamilton and other congregations, I'm sure we appreciate your support so very much. David Smith, one of our other speakers on Good News Today, is here tonight. David and Stephen both are regulars on uh, Good News Today. Stephen will be doing some taping uh, this week, as a matter of fact, as will Leroy Dedman, David's done some recently, and we appreciate uh, these men and the work that they do, as we have uh, already mentioned about Stephen's uh, participation in the Union Grove congregation. All of the elders are here, a newly appointed elder, and we're uh, thankful that they have added uh, an elder to the eldership, Brother Bill Castile, a uh, recently appointed elder, and we appreciate Brother McCracken, Brother Castile, and Brother Stephen Hall, the elders there, and their financial support of Good News Today uh, very, very much, and uh, we appreciate their prayers and uh, support in every every way. The work is growing uh, with God's blessings, and we are thankful for, for that. I think Janice said we had five new Bible Correspondence Course students uh, Sunday uh, phone calls, that five new students enrolling, and uh, that number is growing regularly, we're getting those regularly. So we appreciate the work that David and Stephen and and Leroy and others, Barry Gilroy Jr. helps us out from time to time as well. And incidentally, his program, Fabric of Family, Barry's program is seen now here in Chattanooga every Sunday morning at 6.30 on WFLI, the same channel that we are. On. Won't take much of uh, Stephen's time tonight. Well, his biography was on the screen, if you noticed that, and we have talked about him, but uh, he is a faithful gospel preacher, and that's the best thing that can be said about any uh, preacher, is that he's faithful to the book, and we love and appreciate him so much. He's a 19, uh, or 2005 graduate of Memphis School of Preaching. He has preached at Union Grove for uh, three years now and uh, serves the Lord faithfully and uh, is well-respected throughout our brotherhood among those who know of his work, and many do know of it and appreciate it very much. Hunter, his oldest, is still sick with bronchitis and sinusitis and uh, uh, laryngitis, a lot of itises, and uh, we're sorry about that, but we're prayerful that he'll be feeling better soon, but glad that Cindy and... Uh, all the, the other two here tonight, Mackenzie and Carly, uh, their fine children are here with them. Brother Stephen Hall will be speaking tonight on the subject, The Fool Hath Said in His Heart, There Is No God. Brother Stephen Hall.
1: Again, what a privilege it is to be able to stand before you this evening. I am just thankful to the Lord that He has allowed me to have the health and the ability to be able to preach His Word. And I am just thankful to be a servant of His. That's truly what we all must strive to be. And when it comes to serving God, I cannot think of any greater privilege that can be afforded to any one of us on this planet that He has created than to be a faithful servant in His use, to be His child. And what a great privilege it is to be with other servants and other children of God this evening. And yesterday, of course, was a wonderful day. I, I, I cannot thank you enough for the hospitality and for the love that you have shown to me and my family. I, I only wish that my son were able to be with us uh, so that he could likewise share in those blessings. But uh, Lord willing, if he's feeling better tomorrow, he, he does want to come. He apologized to me. He said, uh, he said, Dad, He said I'm really sorry I can't be there. I said, well, son, I'm very thankful that you take that attitude. And I'm very thankful to have such a, a lovely, godly wife as my wife Cindy. I, I of course, would, would not be uh, uh, nearly as blessed in my life if I did not uh, have them, if God did not bless me with them. And I know that, uh, of course, so many of us men tonight, we can say the same, can't we? Amen. Yes, amen. That's good. Shake your heads. Make sure that your wives see you shaking your heads. <laughs> But again, thank you so much for the, the wonderful meal yesterday and the hospitality and all of the prayers and all of your efforts, uh, as well as, as the great song leading that's been uh, taking place the last couple of days, the wonderful prayers that we have heard. I just cannot thank you enough. And, and again, as far as the Good News Today program, uh, uh, we, we have some very uh, wonderful great speakers, and and I will always consider myself to be the least of them all, and, and I'm just thankful to be a part of that program. Well, tonight, if you will, we're going to look at the attack, if you will, or the assault that is taking place upon the church and upon God in our society and in our culture. Have we not all seen some form of this from one time to the other? Whether it is someone petitioning to take the name of God off of our currency, or whether it is someone petitioning to take prayer out of school, we see it that on every side in our society, in our culture, that we are being attacked. We are being attacked by those who would be deemed godless. That is our thought this evening. And that is, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. I'd like to begin our lesson this evening with the book of Proverbs. If you will, open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. And we're going to note this evening the importance of wisdom. It is always important that we understand the Scriptures. It's always important that we rightly divide the Word of God. And it is always important that we allow the Word of God to direct us and to guide us in all facets of life. But if we desire to be wise, if we desire wisdom, then we must seek after it. Notice at the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, a a book that was written that is inspired of God. Remember that Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And now we find that this book, the book of Proverbs, is a book that is written mainly to impart wisdom unto God's creation. Notice the first five verses of this great book. We read the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice and judgment and equity to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase in learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. So we see from the very beginning of the book that the book is written to impart wisdom unto the creation of God. But we also find that throughout the book, there are many contrasts that are made. And when we understand that it is important to see the contrasts for what they are, then we can learn a great deal about what God considers to be wise and what God considers to be foolish. It is the case that many who work with money, bank tellers, and those who work in that type of profession, they are trained to be able to spot counterfeit money. But how are they trained to spot counterfeit money? They're not given counterfeit money to study, but rather they are given the real thing. They are given money to study and to know all that they can about the real thing, about the true matter. And that is, of course, the case when it comes to these contrasts. If we desire to be wise, we must know what foolishness is. If we desire to learn what folly is, we must desire and seek after wisdom. Well, exactly what does God consider to be folly? What does God consider or call a fool? Well, we find in Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 21 that oftentimes throughout the scriptures, this idea of folly or the idea of one who is foolish is connected directly to one who engages in idolatry. But not only that, we find as well that this idea of folly or this idea of one who is foolish is one who also denies the existence of God. In Psalm 14, verse 1, David writes, The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. We find if we go further in the book of Psalms to Psalm 53, verse 1, That again is reiterated when David again says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. But notice as well, we have a description of that particular one. We read that corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. Now, let us take our thoughts back to, again, the book of Proverbs. And note that in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that Solomon, again, he writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So tonight, as we survey this particular topic, we are first going to define what is meant by the fool, and we're going to also see how the scriptures describe the one who is considered to be a fool. Notice first that the word fool is used primarily in wisdom literature. It is used in the sense of one who hates wisdom. It's used in the sense of one who walks in folly. But notice that the fool, in, as it is used in the scriptures, is not used in the sense of one who does not have a mental capacity, but rather the one who has no respect for Morality the one who is lacking in his desire to be moral, the one who is lacking in his desire to serve God and to walk in his righteous principles and the righteous paths. The idea of the fool in the Scriptures has nothing to do with the intellectual deficiencies. As oftentimes we may use that term, but it does not mean that in the Scriptures. It simply means one who refuses the wisdom of God. Now we find that according to the scriptures, it is the height of folly for one to live his life and for one to cast off the fear of God and act as if he can disregard the righteous principles of God. Again, notice what Solomon said in Proverbs 1 verse 7. We see this very fact, that it is the fear, the reverence of God that is the beginning of knowledge. But what is the contrast to that? Remember, Proverbs is a book of contrasts. So the one who fears or has a reverence for God is the one who will gain and desire knowledge and wisdom. But notice again the contrast but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So now let us turn our focus to how the book of Proverbs describes this one who is considered to be a fool. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 15. And we see here that the fool is one who is described as one who trusts in himself. I have had the privilege of knowing uh, many business owners over my years. And it is the case that I have met some very humble and very kind business owners that realized that they would have nothing in this world if they were not blessed by God. But I have met other business owners who thought that they had made themselves themselves. They thought that they had pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. They thought that they were the ones who were responsible for all of the good things that has happened to them in their lives. Well, notice that this fool is one who trusts in himself. Proverbs 12 and verse 15. When we read, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. But notice as well that the fool likewise that trusts in his heart is found in Proverbs 28 and verse 26. When Solomon writes, He that trusteth in his own heart is, notice this, a fool. But whoso walketh wisely, he shall be delivered. Again, we see the contrast here between the wise one and the foolish one. So the fool trusts in his own heart, but notice also the fool is deaf to instruction. We just read that in Proverbs 1 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise, they shun, they hate wisdom, they hate instruction. And therefore, a fool will die because of this lack of instruction. He will die because of this lack of wisdom. Notice, if you will, in Proverbs 15 and verse 5. Again, Solomon writes concerning uh, uh, this particular idea that a fool is deaf to the instructions of his father a fool despiseth his father's instruction but he that regardeth reproof is prudent i always think of what mark twain said when he at the age of when he wrote later on in his life he said at the age of 17 his father was an unlearned man he was a man who was uneducated he had no no knowledge whatsoever but by the time mark twain said 13 years later when he turned 30 He was amazed at how much knowledge his father had gained in just that short period of time. We do find ourselves sometimes, do we not, as young people perhaps, we discount the teaching, the wisdom, and the instructions of our fathers. And then when we ourselves, perhaps later on in life, become fathers ourselves, we then can truly appreciate the wisdom that they imparted unto us. But not only does a fool, is he deaf to instruction, but also a fool cares to tell everyone else what he knows. Notice in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 2, we find again this principle, that a fool hath no delight in understanding, but his heart may discover itself. And because of this, notice that it is the one who is unwise, the one who is foolish, that thinks that he already knows everything. Notice in Proverbs 18 and verse 13, We read, he that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Now, we are all in the process of learning. And I will be the very first to stand here this evening and to tell you that I, by no means, know everything. None of us in this auditorium this evening has a perfect knowledge in every facet of our lives. We are learners We go through life and we learn and we continue to learn. If you ever meet anyone that says, I know it all, go in the opposite direction. Because none of us know it all, but God does. And His Word teaches us all things that pertain unto life and unto godliness. Notice as well, we find that what fools know are oftentimes known by all. Notice in Proverbs 14 and verse 33, we find this particular case here, that the fools, of course, what they know is soon known by all. When we read, wisdom resteth in the heart of him that hath understanding, but that which is in the midst of fools is made known. I'm sure you all have heard the statement before that it is better to keep your mouth closed and allow others to think that you are a fool than to open it, and to do what? Remove all doubt. So, in essence, we find that according to the scriptures, now according to the word of God, we find that a fool is one who, number one, trusts in himself, number two, who is deaf to instruction, number three, one who cannot be disciplined, number four, one who is impulsive, and finally, number five, one who desires to live according to his own ways. But notice that the fool does not believe that God exists. There are three basic camps of people in the world. We could take everyone in the world and put them into basically one of three camps. Either believers, those who believe that there is a God, those who believe that there is a creator. Then there are those who are agnostic. We find that that letter A, when it is added to the front of a word it denotes or carries the opposite meaning for example in the first century the church had a great problem with those who were gnostics the idea of gnostics is the idea of knowing they were the ones who claimed to be the enlightened ones they were the ones who knew comes from the idea of the word gnosis the idea of to know and therefore one who is agnostic adding the a is one who claims to not know And so there are those who are believers in God, the Creator. There are those who are agnostic, those who claim that you cannot know. And then there are those who are atheist. And notice again we find that letter A. The word theist or theism, dealing with God. The idea of atheism states that there is no God. But brethren, we must be reminded that Christianity is not based upon fiction. It's not based simply upon feeling or emotions. Christianity is based upon logic, based upon fact, based upon evidence, and it is based upon reason. And so as we understand this, we must also realize that there are only one of two choices. There either is a God or there is not. There either, of course, is theism or there is atheism. There can be no mixture of the two. There is the law of the excluded middle. It is either one or the other. There is either a God or there is not a God. Well, brethren, I believe, as we are going to note in just a few moments, we're going to look at a lot of the evidences that the Scripture gives for the existence of God and our belief and our faith in God. But notice that the atheism, or atheism, the atheist, he has a lot of troubles concerning his beliefs. First off, the atheist cannot explain morality. Just for a moment, think, if you will, a world that has no morals. Think of a world that is not governed by any sort of law. Think of a world wherein might makes right. You see, if there Is no God, then there is no moral lawgiver. And therefore, you and I would be free to dictate or choose whatever morals that we see fit. And you see, the atheist, of course, cannot answer this particular argument. If there is no God, then there is no moral lawgiver. Therefore, the assertion of the, that the strongest are the ones who will rule, that might will make right, and without morality, even such things as murder or killing it, it, the innocent is not wrong. A very noted atheist by the name of Tom Warren, he made the statement in regards to this when he was confronted with this argument about morality. And his words perhaps will shock you tonight. He said this. He said that stepping on a cockroach and killing a a child is virtually the same. You see, that is the very core of atheism. The idea that atheism cannot explain morality. But likewise, there is a sense of oughtness. We all realize that there are things that we ought to do, and we all understand there are things that we ought not to do. There are things that ought not to be done. We find that in world, after World War II, during the trials uh, at Nuremberg, that this was one of the greatest uh, uh, cases that the prosecution had presented. It was, of course, Germany who was being tried, and, and they took the position... That they were a, pro- a, 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 a country, that they, of course, had their own laws, that they could set their own laws, that, that they, of course, were prominent in, in that effect, that, that they could, because they were a, a country, they had the authority to set their own laws, and no one else could judge them. No one else, they said, had the right to come and to tell them that the laws that they have set forth were wrong. But notice what the prosecutor, Robert Jackson, set forth in his arguments during World War II. He said that there is a higher law, a law that transcends, notice, the provincial and the transient. Now, what law is that? That is the law of God. Again, if there is no God, there is no moral lawgiver, and there is no morals. But also, atheism cannot explain the existence of life. We find that there are only two choices when it comes to the existence of life. Either life came from God and was created, or life did not come from God. Now, if life did not come from God, then what are we left with? We are left with the assumption that the universe created itself. We are left with the assumption that man came from chaos. Perhaps you all are familiar with the basic premise of evolution. When I was attending school, it was said to be 4.5 billion years ago that the earth, of course, or the universe came into existence. But I've found here recently that 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 age is, of course, becoming older. Now, why is that? Why are scientists continually changing the age of the earth They are doing so because they need to fit in their own theories. They are doing so in order to present their own thoughts and theories. And therefore, what do they need to do? They need to make the earth continually older and older and older. But there is a great problem with this. You see, it is the case that science, of course, teaches us that life, cannot come from inanimate matter. If matter, of course, is the creator, then matter is eternal. But matter is not eternal. Now, how do we know this? Well, we know this from what is known or called the law of thermodynamics. The idea of thermodynamics is the study of energy. Now, scientists, of course, have concluded that the first law of thermodynamics states that energy cannot be created nor destroyed. It simply just changes form. The second law of thermodynamics simply states that the energy as it is used becomes more unstable and it begins to wear down. It begins to break down and it becomes more unusable the more that it is used. An example of this would be, let's say that you were to go out and buy a brand new car tonight. You were to go out and buy a 2014 or thirteen car right off the showroom floor. Take that car and go and park it in the middle of the field. Come back 10 years later. You haven't physically touched the car. You haven't driven the car. No one has been in the car. Nothing has, as far as, as the human hands have touched it, but what is going to be the condition of the car? It's going to wear down. It's going to wear out. Just like our clothing. Our clothes, it wears out over time. Now does the Bible say anything at all about this particular law? Yes, we find it. We find it in Hebrews chapter 1 beginning in verse 10. Go there with me if you will. As we understand this this basic principle that if the universe is winding down, if if, if the things that exist are wearing out, then at one time it had to be wound up. And who did that winding up? God. Notice in Hebrews chapter one beginning in verse 10, "And the and thou Lord in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands. Now notice, they shall perish, but thou remainest and all and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. You see, when we understand that it is God, of course, who wound up, who created all things, then we can understand, of course, that there was no chemical reaction in some puddle four and a half billion years ago that that somehow created life. That that there was no slime and ooze at one time and and out of which some cells decided to come together and form and, and to crawl out of that ooze. Brethren, it takes, I believe, a great amount of faith. It takes a great leap of faith to believe in such things. Well, notice also that atheism cannot explain the existence of the universe. They say that it all started with the Big Bang. But you never get an answer as to what brought about that Big Bang. You never get an answer to what it was before the Big Bang. They never explain how the physical realm came into being. They never explain how the empty vacuum of space itself even exists. You see, it is the case that a toy demands a toy maker, a shoe demands a shoemaker, a watch demands a watch maker, a house demands a house maker, a universe demands a universe maker, and a man demands a man maker. Notice that we find in Hebrews chapter three, beginning in verse four, that the writer explains to us that it's just simply foolish to think that something can come from nothing. When he says, For every house is built by some man, but but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in, in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. You see, a house demands a house maker. Imagine, if you will, as you're going to purchase a house, you, of course, many of us in in this auditorium at one time in our lives have owned a home. And when you bought that home, of course, you, you had to go through the process, the legalities of it. You knew when the home was built. You saw the deed to it. You, of course, went through all of that process. You knew who perhaps it was that built the house. You knew, of course, when it was that they built the house. But imagine going out and looking for a home with a realtor. And all of a sudden, you pass by this structure. And the realtor says, I have no idea where that house came from. A month ago, it wasn't there. And then now, today, it just happened to to, to be there. Perhaps what happened was a truck was driving down the road, a lumber truck. And as that lumber truck was driving down the road, there was a, a big bump in the road and that that truck hit that bump and all the lumber fell off that truck and landed on the side of the road. And then the next day, a truck that was carrying a, a whole bunch of nails was driving down that same road. It hit that same bump and all the nails came up out of that truck and landed on the side of the road next to the lumber. And then the next day, a truck carrying bricks As it's going down the road, it again hits that same bump. All the bricks fall over into where the lumber and the nails are. And then the next day, a paint truck comes by. And it hits that bump and all the paint ends up on the side of the road. And then a plaster truck and so on and so on until finally all the materials that were needed to build that house were just laying there on the side of the road. Well, then how do you explain it then if just the materials are there? Ah, here's the answer. You see, the very next day, there came through a great hurricane. And these, this, this great hurricane ended up picking up all of this material, the wood and the nails and the brick and the plaster and, and, and everything, and it started swirling around, and they, those materials started banging against each other and hitting against each other. And this hurricane was so great, it just went on and on for, for three or four days until finally that house was created. What's the difference in in, in that, that fairy tale of a story and then believing that everything we see around us just came about out of chaos in the same manner? You see, we find that the God of the Bible is the only adequate cause for all that we see. We find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that only an omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God could create everything that now is. Moses reminds us in Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them is. But brethren, tonight, if there's only one thought that you take away from this sermon please listen very closely because I want you to understand this if there's only one thought that you take away tonight it's this you see so many people in the world today say that only smart people are smart people are the ones who believe in evolution have you thought of that have you heard that that, that if, if you believe in God or if you believe in creation, Uh, then you're not somehow learned, you're not educated, that that only smart people believe, the the smart people believe in evolution. Well, here's the point, brethren, here's what I, I hope that you take away tonight. It is not God versus science. It is good science versus bad science. It is never and is not God versus science. So many people today want to say that, well, if you believe in God, then you cannot believe in science. Well, that argument does not hold water. Because it is God Himself who created the laws of nature. It is God Himself who created all of the scientific laws that we see that exist today. God cannot be tested in the laboratory. He cannot be placed into the test tube. He cannot be put underneath the microscope. It is never God versus science. It is rather credible science versus uncredible science. In Psalm 19 verse 1, we find that it is the heavens that declare the glory of God. And notice that the firmament showeth His handiwork. I want us tonight just to focus very briefly before we close on some of the biblical evidences that we find concerning creationism. I want us to first look at what we call scientific foreknowledge. These particular thoughts are given to us in the scriptures hundreds if not thousands of years before man ever came to understand them before man ever came to know and to realize that these scientific evidences even existed. It was the case that in 1492, before Columbus sailed the ocean blue, on the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, that there was a great debate over whether or not those ships would sail off the edge of the earth. Even at that time, 1492, there were people who debated whether or not the earth was flat, or whether the earth was round. But you see, it was the prophet who was inspired of God. Some 800 years before the birth of Christ who wrote these words. It is he that sitteth above the circle of the earth. Isaiah 40 and verse 22. If those during that time had only read the Bible, if those at that time had only read what Isaiah had written, they would have known that the earth is round. But what about also the fact that the earth hangs in space? Uh, Many people a a, a long time ago had different theories and different thoughts as to how the earth was suspended. There were some in, in certain cultures who believed that the earth was suspended on the back of an elephant. In some cultures they believed that the earth would sit upon some column and it was suspended in that fashion. There are some that believe that there was a man named Atlas, and you've seen that, where he suspended the earth on his back. But I want us to know what the inspired writer reminds us of in Job 26 and verse 7 when he speaks of God and in his creation that he stretcheth out the north over the empty space and he hangeth the earth upon nothing. That shows us the gravity that God created. Well, what about the paths in the sea? There was an oceanographer, his name was Matthew Fontaine Murray, and he was credited to having discovered what is known as the currents in the sea. You know, you, you often heard of the currents the, that, that go through the seas and through the oceans. A well, man did not find out about this until just a several hundred years ago. But I want us to note what the great psalmist wrote a thousand years before Christ when he wrote the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. Psalm 8 and verse 8. The inspired writer wrote of those paths long before man ever came to understand them. Well, what about the hydrologic cycle? You know, it is the case that As you look out upon the ocean, there's a lot of of water there. And what happens to all of that water? Well, the sun, of course, with its heat, beats down upon the water. The molecules of that water, H2O, begin to heat up. And as they begin to heat, they begin to become lighter and they rise up into the air. They form in clouds, and as those clouds travel, when they again become cooler and they they begin to become heavy, that water again will become heavy and it will fall to the earth. We call it what? Rain. And then that rain runs off and it runs into the rivers and into tributaries. And then, of course, the tributaries end up running into the sea. Did man discover that on his own? How is it then that the wisdom writer... Again, some thousand years before the birth of Christ, could write these words in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 7 All the rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. So we see that there is great scientific foreknowledge in the scriptures. But what about medical foreknowledge? Is there anything in the scriptures that would teach us something in regards to the foreknowledge of medicine and, and, and the idea of medical foreknowledge? Scientists have discovered recently, or not recently, but here uh, within uh, just a matter of, of, of several years, many years, that a child on his eighth day of life has over 100% has more of the vitamin called vitamin K and prothrombin in his body than any other day throughout his entire existence. Now, why is this important? Well, if you have ever been put on blood thinner, cumidin or something to that nature, perhaps your doctor has told you to avoid dark, uh, leafy green vegetables because those types of vegetables are high in vitamin K. Vitamin K is a coagulant. It makes your blood thicker. It coagulates. Prothrombin as well is a coagulator. And on the eighth day of, of a child's life, those two matters, vitamin K and prothrombin, are at their highest level than in any other time of our lives. Now you might be asking, why, why is this important? Why, why is this? Well, notice in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3 that before man could realize even what vitamin K and prothrombin was, notice we read, "...and in the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised." So we see that God, through His wisdom, of course had revealed all of these evidences, but man just simply ignored them. Well, there are many other arguments that can be used uh, to, of course, explain the existence of God, there is, of course, the argument of design. A, a great design necessitates a designer. Perhaps you remember the debate that took place back in the 1970s between Anthony Flew, a, a great and well known atheist, and our brother, Thomas B. Warren. It took place over the existence of God. Anthony Flew was a champion for the atheists. He, of course, was well-known and world-renowned as a defender of atheism. But before his death, even Anthony Flew concluded that because of all of the great design we see, that there has to be a designer. What about also what is known as the cosmological argument? That is the idea of a prime mover, the notion that God is the first cause of all things that we see. There's even what is called the ontological argument. That is the idea that, that what is greater than our minds and thoughts cannot be made up. Now tonight, can you tell me of something you've never seen, never heard, never learned, or are never ever been taught in your life? Can you tell me anything like that? You see, it cannot be done. It is only because God had revealed Himself, Romans 1 and verse 20, and it is because through creation, and it is because through the revelation, the Word of God, that we can understand and know God. And then there is what is known as the anthropic argument. And I like this argument above above all because it's just based on simple facts. The fact that, that humanity's existence is just best and simply explained by the existence of God. So remember, it is not God versus science. It is good science versus bad science. Because we cannot put God in in the laboratory. God is the creator of all things. I'd like for us to also tonight focus our thoughts very quickly on that second group we talked about. That is the agnostics. There are some that claim, well, no one can know. We don't know if the atheists are right. We don't know if, if, if those who believe in God and creationism are right. We just simply uh, cannot know. We'll notice that by asserting that one cannot know, that one is asserting a certain amount of knowledge that can be understood. Well, in this case, how can anyone, the agnostic, claim that no one can know? The agnostic oftentimes will say that there is is no way anyone can know because there is no such thing as absolute truth. You know how I like to answer that? Are you absolutely sure? Hebrews 3 and verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but he that built all things is God. Psalm 14 verse 1. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. Atheism cannot explain away morality. Atheism cannot explain away the existence of life. Atheism cannot explain away the existence of the universe. The only conclusion that can be drawn is that everything was created by an all-powerful, all-knowing creator and sustainer, God in heaven. And notice the Word tells us that The Word was the agent through which all things were created. John reminds us of this when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not. That idea, again, of, of the darkness not comprehending the light does not refer to someone who cannot understand because of, of a, some sort of intellectual uh, uh, disability. The idea of the the darkness not comprehending the light is that the darkness did not want to know the light. And therefore we see what has come about. Man denies the existence of God. Not because of the evidence, but because instead of submitting, he would rather rebel. Brethren, what will we do How will we weigh the evidence? Perhaps there is one here tonight who has yet to become a child of God. Perhaps there is one here tonight who who, who is struggling with the idea of submitting unto God. And and in the past you have rebelled and and you have denied the existence of God because you, you have desired to rebel instead of submit. Brethren, don't be counted among those in the Scriptures as what the Scriptures call foolish. There is ample evidence. There is great logic and great reason in believing in the existence of God. Tonight, one may ask, well, how do I submit unto Him? How do I give my life to Him? Well, we must do it according to His way. So many in the world today have, have, out of sincerity and out of emotion and out of feeling, uh, thought that they have given their lives unto God, but but they haven't done it according to the Scriptures. You see, it's important that we we submit our our very being unto Him, that we give Him our all, that that we we become His and, and, and we become His child, but we must do it His way. So what is His way? Well, we find, of course, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. It is only through the revelation of the Word of God that we can know how to become a child of God, how we can obey Him. So the Scriptures teach that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 8 and verse 24, Unless we believe that He is, then we will die or perish in our sins. So if we then understand that God created all things, and that Jesus Christ is his Son, His only begotten Son, and that He is our Savior, then we must obey what He has commanded us to obey. And what He has He commanded us to do. He's commanded us to repent of our sins. Repentance is not just simply being sorry. Repentance requires a complete change in direction. That is to say that that we're going down one road and then when we repent, we turn around, we change our lives, and we're now headed in a new direction. A change of mind that leads to that change of life. And then once we repent, then we, like the eunuch in Acts 8 verse 37, can make that great Confession with our mouths that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And upon that great confession, we can be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 2 and verse 38. I like again what Ananias said unto Saul when he said, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Perhaps there is one here tonight that needs to do that. You need to arise. That is to say, when we sing the invitation song, come forward. There will be, I will be here, Brother Dearman, anyone here will be happy to help you and and, and do whatever we can if you have more questions to study with you further. But tonight, if you're ready to become a child of God, then just come forward. Or perhaps there is one here tonight that is a child of God, but you've wandered back into the world. Once you've escaped the pollutions of the world, perhaps you've once again found yourself entangled therein. And Peter reminds us that the end is worse than the beginning. Would not it be awful to have been a child of God who lived faithfully for just a few years and then became unfaithful and died in that condition? And on that great day of judgment, to see your God looking right at you and His face. The face of love and compassion. And all that you could ever imagine. That, that, that view of Almighty God. And to know that at one time in your life that you had the truth. And that you were living the truth. And that heaven was your home and you were prepared. But, but you laid it down. You laid down your cross and you became unprepared once again. And then your fate is delivered unto you as that beautiful face of God begins to turn away from you and you realize now what your state and what your fate will be. Brethren, it need not be so. There is not one tonight who never ever needs to experience that dreadful, dreadful fate. So perhaps there is one that needs to come home a child of God who needs to return, or perhaps there's one precious soul here tonight that needs to be added to the church and obey the gospel of Christ. God loves us, and He wants all men everywhere to be saved, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. Tonight, if you have that need, I implore you to answer the Lord's invitation. As together we stand and as we sing.